The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Um, I'd like to offer a prayer of confession this morning. Father, We seek you this morning, God, to confess that so often we can see you as an add-on to what we value or find important. God, you are the origin and source of life, and we fail to see that so often by choosing things outside of you, by desiring things that are not from you by loving things that separate us from you. God, I pray that you would change our hearts and minds this morning, that we would see you as you truly are, that we would have the strength and power to obey you God, we pray that you would be with us this morning, changing our hearts, giving us confidence as we boldly approach you. And I pray you do that work in us as a body here. And help us to love one another instead of hating one another. Help us to encourage one another instead of talk about one another. Help us to have everything in common, Lord. Help us to share our resources. Help us to reflect your glory to the community we live in instead of turn people away. Forgive us, God, for the ways we fall short. And give us what we need, Lord, to be the people that you have planned us to be. In your son's name, amen. I'd like to give you guys a second to offer your own prayer of confession. If you have confessed your sins to God and you've asked for forgiveness this morning, he is faithful and has forgiven you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has not only heard your cry, but has made you in right standing with him. Let me pray for our morning. Father, 
We thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins. That it is only through his blood that we are seen righteous and good and holy and made presentable for you. We pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of your truths this morning. That we would see you as we ought. And we would love you and appreciate you more. Because of your great goodness. In your name, amen. So if you've been following along for the last month, then you know we have been going through a sermon series entitled Be Different, Paul's Letter to the Ephesians. And this is actually our fourth weekend. But in that first week, if you remember, Daniel gave us a glimpse of what the church was like in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a major area of commerce because the area had intersected many trade routes. So this is a place that is kind of popping, you know, like Bay Street Port Orchard <laughs> or the Silverdale Mall on the weekends because Ephesus has been in the middle of those trade routes. And because of that, it also was more than likely a very diverse area that had many different philosophies and thoughts. If you remember, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana, not to be confused with our Diana, who is very sweet and godly. Paul is not writing this letter as a response to an issue. He's writing it to help the church understand how to be different and to share in the high goals God has for the body, the church. And then if you followed that, then you remember Ibrahim's message that followed that message, and that was this idea of being blessed and chosen. If you recall, he spoke on election and what that means and our part in adoption. We're not just here because we are adopted. It's also because we are heirs. Which led to last week where Daniel spoke on what it means to be powerful. And if you remember, we believe that we are powerful when we are in control. But we know that real power is when we recognize his calling, his glorious inheritance, and his incomparably great power. Which leads us to this week. So let me read you our intro. God is calling us to be a different kind of people, a holy people. Holiness is a quality that uniquely belongs to God. Being a different people means that our primary identity is part of God's holy family. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gives instructions on how to live as holy people in a world that doesn't like our kind of different. I look forward to Saturdays. Not for the reason that you think I do. You probably think, you know, it's a day off. I bet you he loves that. But my eldest daughter, Scarlett, and I have made our time together on the weekends hanging out kind of a tradition. Generally, I'll fire up the barbecue and I'll grill either chicken, steak, or some kind of kebab. And I'll pair it with a vegetable like asparagus, green beans, or squash. Which I then add a hearty salad with all the fixings. And then I'll literally pull my television outside because we have these plugins by the wall where our deck is. 
and I get prepared to watch the fights with her. Boxing. It's the only fighting we watch. We do not watch wrestling. We do not watch MMA. I do not like either of those things. We watch boxing. I'm there for the commentary and the excitement. Scarlett says she's there for the knockouts. Man, I love Scarlett. Okay? So last Saturday night, as we were settling in, it was kind of this big night. It was this rematch for a fight that had ended in a draw. It was Jermel Charlo who has the WBA, WBC, and IBF lightweight titles versus Brian Castaño for his WBO lightweight title. We're in a four-bell era, okay, in that same weight class. If you own all, you are the undisputed champion in the world because boxing involves every country. So if you have all four titles... You're boss hog if you got that belt. belt. So this fight would declare who is the greatest lightweight champion in the world and unify all titles under one person. Thousands of people are in attendance in Texas, ranging from celebrities, personalities, and people from all over to witness this historic occasion. And I called this four hours in advance on Twitter, Jermel Charlo knocks out Brian Castaño in the 10th round of a 12-round bout, becoming the undisputed lightweight champion of the world and only the seventh undisputed champion in the four-belt era. So there had never been someone to hold all four of these specific titles in the 154-weight class. At the end of the fight, as the camera was panning the new champion... You see Jermel Charlo gesturing with his hands, and he kept repeating this phrase. Where's my crown? Where's my crown? I want my crown. Jermel Charlo is now at the height of his career. He has worked hard. He spent time in the gym. He studied tapes. He is now the undisputed champion. He is energetic. He is vibrant. He has charisma. He is powerful. He's funny to listen to. And some people might say, that is what living in life looks like. It's this constant striving to be the very best or to champion the accomplishments and goals that we have either laid out for ourselves or someone else that we a lot of times will identify with. We would say people that do these things are living their best life now or even doing what they do. We make statements like, man, this person is the truth. Or that personally, this person only wins. This person never loses. I never see them taking L's. Or man, I'd love to like be more like so-and-so. How many times have you seen people say or insinuate they are living their best life with a conglomerate of different circumstances, experiences, and places. We've probably all done it at some point. Check social media and you will see someone sitting on this beautiful island with their fruity drink in hand with a hashtag, living my best life now. To which all their friends will write, yes! Which is like five caps lock A's, five cap lock S's. 
Or you might see a photo of someone walking down the road, holding the hand of their significant other while eating ice cream. This person always gets me ice cream on Thursdays. Living my best life, hashtag, right? To which their friends will write, do you, friend, or I'm so jealous. You're so lucky to have so-and-so. Or maybe it's the constant barrage of life is good memorabilia or merchandise. You know, with the stick figures. Life is good. It's camping. Life is good. Playing tennis. Life is good. I got this cool little mug when I was on a vacation recently that says God is good. It's just so funny because every time I sip with it, it just looks funny, you know. It's true, and I love it, you know. So, or how about when you think of your life and how you live, what is it that identifies you? Is it an ability? As some of us age, don't we realize there's things we can't do? I want to learn how to skateboard, but I also realize that if I get hurt, I might be out of work for a while and my kids will be affected. (laughs) Is it an accomplishment or an award? What happens when you haven't received an award in a long time or even recognized or noticed? Is it overall happiness? That stuff rises and falls. We're happy one day, we're upset the next. Is it recognition? What about not being noticed for your hard work? You're putting in all this time and effort and no one cares. Is it relationships? Think about all the friends that have come and gone since the moment you were born. So my hope today is kind of to paint this broad picture that our culture says a lot about what life is, how we can live our best lives and what defines a good life. And while many things seem really attractive, interesting, and pull at our very heartstrings, we are failing to ask one of the most important questions of all. And the question that people generally are not asking is, what does it mean to truly be alive? To be alive. If you are here with us right now, you have blood, oxygen, and a pulse. So I can assure you, by all physical standards, you are alive. But that's not what we're talking about. The question I want to ask you this morning with your blood, oxygen, and pulse intact is, are you truly living? Are you hashtag living your best life? And before you get ready to hurl stones at me for a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel message, I just want you to hear me out. Because the passage that we're going to look at today is going to show us what it means to be truly living. How and how it's not obtained. And what it means to be alive. And once we know that, what we're going to do with it. So the big question I want to ask you today is, how do you know that you personally are alive? And the big idea that I want you to see is we know we are truly living when we recognize we do not have the power to bring ourselves from death to life. When we recognize that the life God has given us is a gift. And then once we've known those two things, we commit ourselves to the work that he has planned for us. If you can flip over to Ephesians or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's 10 short verses, and in these 10 short verses, we're going to break it down into three parts. And it is my belief that if we understand these three pieces, we will know whether or not we are truly living. So let's look at the text together. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live 
when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, Paul here is writing to the church, right? And this is a church, if you recall, has Jewish believers, people of the original promise to Abraham, and Gentiles, those who came to faith when the Holy Spirit had come upon them at Pentecost. We talked about that also about a month ago. And Paul here is starting to lay out kind of a little bit of what it looks like living together with those we have differences with. So it's a little bit of, let me tell you your part in the story. Let me tell you their part in the story. Let me remind you where you came from. Let me remind you where you're going. And here's your common ground with these people. But there were so many little things that as I read this passage, I kind of noticed and I was like, that's really interesting that it's worded that way or that it's said in this manner. Like in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins as a church. Don't we often lump those two things together? We kind of almost like see them as if they're the same word and they're not because transgressions are going against a commander law. And sins are directly a transgression against God. So both break the law. One is directly towards God. So while similar or used similarly, they are different. A transgression can be breaking a law. Sin is transgression specifically against God. So you are dead in breaking the law against God the law, and against God. Verse 2, in which you used to live. Isn't it incredible how soon we forget where we've come from? But that's a reminder. When Paul is talking here, notice he says words like gratifying, to obtain pleasure, and cravings, a powerful longing for something of our flesh, or in our flesh and in our desires. So we not only lived separate, we actually enjoyed it. You have never heard someone use the word craving in a negative context. My wife craves chocolate. My wife has a powerful longing for chocolate. Who doesn't? Thank you, Susie. I don't. I'm a savory guy. But you... You had a powerful longing to appease, your, to appease your flesh through any means necessary. Actually, 
if you look at those verses, something we might not say loud in a room, is that you are following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is the devil. So we deserve the death penalty. We deserve punishment. We're guilty. So here we are. Once, once we were dead to God because of our former lives and we lived in our flesh and treated our flesh as if it was God, bringing it pleasure, joy, and glory and not giving that to God. And then we kind of see this momentum shift and we should be really, really excited about the momentum shift in verse 4 because what we see is that God in his great love, God in his mercy, this means he's wealthy, right? He's rich in mercy. He has an abundance of mercy that he has made us in. So he looked at us with compassion, forgiveness, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit. Verse 5, made us is an important word. That's a word that we don't really see when we read really quickly. Made is a very important word here. Because it gives us this idea that he had to do it. With is also an important word. With, because we usually think in or of, but with is that word. So you slow down, you see that. Then verse 6, but wait, there's more, right? So God raises us to sit next to Jesus in the heavenly realm. So it isn't just that he made us alive, he is now putting us somewhere. Because no one at this point has physically died besides Jesus for this thought process, okay? And we're being raised with him. And we see this kind of affecting us here on earth, but then also in heaven. And then verse 7, notice the word kindness. With the word grace in this verse, we should walk away thinking because of his kindness, our eyes have been opened so that we can see our sin. And be drawn to repentance. Verse 7 and 8 repeat the phrase. For it is by grace you have been saved. Twice you see that. Now that your eyes have been opened. That you could believe this idea that it was because of faith. Because that's what it says in the second repetition. And remember then in verse 8. It's nothing you've done. You didn't do any of that. So now that we've kind of talked through it, I have three things that I want to point out that should help you to know whether you are truly living or not. Are we alive today? As a collective body, are we alive? There are th three things that we must understand in order to know whether we are alive or not. And I say them in the form of must. We must realize that we cannot in our own power change from death to life. Look at verses Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving wrath. How many of us pride ourselves on our ability to do something? We love the recognition that we receive for our abilities and skills. This dates back all the way to when we were young. If you guys remember, most of us, 
have probably had moments where we were sitting in the kitchen on the floor or at a table and we had a crayon and we were kind of swirling and coloring and drawing and then we took that picture that we made and we went to our mother or father or grandmother or whoever that person was in our lives and we said, look what I made you. And our parents acted like they knew what we were talking about and they looked at it and they said, how nice. That's awesome. And, you know, they'd probably ask about it because they needed to understand our abstractedness. But they saved all those pictures, right? Right. I'm sure some of us have some. But we really thrived under that. We got excited. Look at my good work. Almost like, look what I can do. That thought that my parents are so proud of me. How about the children's song that we used to sing? I'm bringing home my baby bumblebee. Won't my mommy be so proud of me? Or the blue ribbons that everyone as a group received at the science fair because we put on a successful science fair. We like to be noticed. To be truthful, we love to get our way. We love to control the outcomes. We don't like the idea that there's things in life that we can't change because that feels helpless or weak. People say things like that. But Paul is telling the church, this is exactly where you were. It's exactly where we were before our eyes were opened. When it comes to this life, you now have in Christ, you had nothing of worth to facilitate the change. You had no ability whatsoever to move your status from death into life. These first three verses are meant to give you, without a shadow of a doubt, that you cannot change that position for yourself. As for you, you were dead in sins and transgressions. If you look up the term dead, you'll probably see a definition that is the opposite of living. When we think of life and living, we often think bright colors on trees, lots of activity, movement that we apply to youthfulness, all our faculties intact, and on good days, great health. But according to verse 1, that's not who you were. Because you were dead, I was dead, we were dead in our former lives. Death has no power to raise itself. When something is dead, it no longer moves. It has finality. When something is dead, it does not produce new life. It continues being dead. It is stopped. It has no ability to change. The ability to change, the time to change has since passed. It continues in death, hopelessness. And that's what these three verses are trying to point out that we were hopeless, dead, and dying in our transgressions and sins. We had no power to change our state of being dead. We broke God's law, and we did it without regret. We didn't have remorse or sorrow. We were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is the devil, the one who is alive, and those that are the sons of disobedience, according to verse 3. It wasn't accidental. You weren't a good person doing good things. We love the life we lived or the lack of the life we lived, and we were okay with it. Sometimes people say they hate labels or it's unfair to label something like that. But however, whether we have acknowledged it or not, anything before we were made alive in Christ that proclaimed a life devoid of God is from the devil. 
That is truth. It might not look like devil worship. So what I'm not saying is people were seancing and running around a cauldron or something. You know? What I'm saying is that the ideals, the form, the practicality pointed to a life without God in our lives. This is an object of the devil because he wants us to be confused so that we cannot seek God. He wants you to believe that you had some great opportunity in your life to grab God by the reins, but you did not have that power until he made you alive. However, this was all of us, not just one person. He said, all of you, as for you, all of you. As an example, I was thinking a few summers ago, I was camping with my younger brother and my father, and as we sat there kind of stoking the fire, you know, my dad had this moment where he goes, you know, your brother Tyler, who's 14 years younger than me, he is, you know, not religious like you. He's a good person. And as I was sitting there, I said, kind of in this like Gandalf sage moment, as I was like poking the fire, I go, according to who? And he goes, well, you know, Jake, I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. And I go, well, obviously you're measuring him towards something because he's good. So what has shown you what is good that you see him as good? And so then I told him, I said, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I told him that even in all of our good works, that those are nothing more than filthy rags before the Lord. And I said, he couldn't possibly be good because I'm not good. I wasn't saying that to sound righteous. That's Romans 3.23 and Isaiah 64.4. I was saying it because it's the truth. We all by our very nature deserve God's wrath and punishment. We were slaves to our life of death. We had sinned, we had broken God's law, and we deserve the punishment that comes with it. We see the same idea in Titus. Titus 3.3. At one time... We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We have to come to a place that we understand that we have nothing in and of ourselves to create life from death. We are not able to bring ourselves to life. We did not want to be living and we enjoyed our separation from God. And if we had known a better way, even a thought, and you see this in the conversations you have with people as you're sharing the good news and they just can't understand it, right? We would have continued choosing unless God had made that available to us. We would have kept choosing those other things. This leads us to the second thing that we're going to have to realize this morning. And the second thing is we must see being made alive as a gift. Can I get Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 on the screen? So, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So 
as we have exhausted this thought of having no power or ability to bring ourselves from death to life, we see kind of this shift in that verse 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in our transgressions. God, who is rich, this idea of wealth, remember here that he has an abundance of mercy. God looking on us in his abundance of mercy. This richness, this is not shallow earthly wealth. We look up to people who have a lot of money because we believe this is the way to influence and power. But God's wealth isn't limited to this kind of earthly wealth and power. This wealth is much greater because while money carries weight in earthly measure, his mercy extends with eternal purposes. This mercy that makes us alive is not only for our present reality affecting us today, but it is for the future. It carries into the heavenly realms without end. How did God do that? And I believe what we're seeing is an excellent example of what true love looks like. He has every right, like we said earlier, to punish us for the transgressions and sins that we are guilty of but instead looks on us with compassion and forgiveness. That's how mercy is defined. God literally sees our helplessness and comes to our aid. He rescues us. God, through his son, Jesus, created a way where there was no other possible way. For anyone that's older here, I want you to think of kind of like a well and a child who fell down a well that cannot reach up and get out. We're hoping for Lassie to come, right? Are we not? That's what we're hoping for. But Lassie's not coming. Jesus is. And that's how we're going to get out of the well. That's how we're going to go from death to life. Made is the key word. God made out of love. It's this creating power, this same kind of love and power God exerted when he blew breath into the lungs of Adam on the first morning of humanity. He brought life out of the ground, a ground that could not produce anything without the will of God. God created us with Christ to be alive while we are dead in our trespasses. So we need to slow down as we read verse 5 so that what we notice is that it says with Christ, not in Christ, but with Christ. In that example, it says with, which is a unifying word, together with Christ. I want you to think with me about pancakes. We know what plain pancakes are. I do not like them. But if you add blueberries, well, now you have blueberry pancakes. This is not merely a pancake. It is blueberry pancakes. They are my favorite. The batter has been changed. It is now consistently blueberry pancakes. If you have put the blueberries inside of the batter, you can remove the chunks, but you will always have remnants of blueberry in your batter. The makeup has been altered. If Christ's spirit has come to reside in you, then now you are a vessel of God's spirit. Your complete makeup has been altered. So when we think of the statement, being made with Christ, I want you to see the person who has been made alive changed, consisting of self, but also of Christ. Remember, no ability to change. It was a gift made from God's love. We call that grace. 
unmerited favor. God's election, as Abraham called it a few weeks ago. It was initiated and fulfilled completely by God's love. A great parenting example that we receive from God, giving the very best to his children. When you parent a child, you will do your very best to give them the best opportunity to grow up. We purposely do our best so that one day when they leave the house, they're going to know the important parts of what it means to be an adult and to eventually be a parent like we are. Maybe a parent better than we are. They didn't earn that from us. We gave that to them. It was a gift of wisdom. You have never received a gift for something you have done. If you had, that's called a reward. And if you have a reward, you have every reason to brag about it because of what you've done. But since it's a gift, you can only brag about the person who gave it to you, which is Christ. Amen. This is not a reward, a reward or an award. It's a gift. You did not earn it. So what kind of gift has he given us? We've been saved, not only today from present trouble, but in the future. We already know that no matter what happens here on earth, our eternity has been made safe and secure. And that isn't it. Not only have we been brought from death to life, but we get all the benefits that the new life entails. And let me share with you what those are. If you look through verses 6 through 9, again, you are going to see that those who are living have an inheritance in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. How is this possible? It is possible through the power that was made through the death and resurrection of Christ. Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Can't go away. His life is forever. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, this is Revelations 1, 5 through 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ's death and resurrection made this transfer from death a permanent reality in those who have received the gift of salvation. There is now position and power in Christ. When we receive the gift, we are... We are now found with Christ innocent, not guilty. For a negative statement, we are found not guilty. For a positive statement, we are made righteous. Our identity and position is completely changed. Remember, our makeup has been altered. He took our sins, he put in his righteousness. That is your identity now, if you live today in Christ. In this new life, having had died to our former selves, we are raised as Christ was raised. Death no longer holds its grip on us. We no longer feel the need to gratify our fleshly cravings. Those can be put to death, true death. If you believe anything outside of that, you are living in a false reality. If you believe that you have put to death your former self, then you can put to death the sin that has crippled you in life, the sin that you are experiencing Maybe death from an affair, or an addiction, or a hurt, or a habit, or a hang-up, or even hurts that seem impossible to be freed from. There is freedom and ability for those that are alive in Christ. In the same way your old self was put off, you can put off these things too. 
Christ's death and resurrection, which we have been created with, has given us power over these things. We know this because of the way that we were explained before he made us alive. In 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 11, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So look at how we were identified before the blood had washed us. If we have died in a death like his, surely we will be raised as he was raised. With that raising comes the actualization of the inheritance that was brought to us. That same spirit that Christ has, we have. As Christ displays and embodies the love of the Father to the Father's children, we embody and display that Christ. And that means that people will see the transformation that comes through him and praise him for it. So we must recognize that we had no power to change from death to life. We must also recognize that being made alive with Christ is a complete gift. And that leads us to our final point this morning. And the final point is that we must commit to the work that he has prepared for us. Ephesians 2.10 For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In order to commit to the good works which God prepared for us in advance to do, we first have to understand what is meant by being God's handiwork. When I cross-referenced this first part of Ephesians 2.10, I stumbled upon some interesting verses. Isaiah 29.23, When they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Isaiah 43.7, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 60, 21, Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. Being God's handiwork in Greek culture often referred to being like a piece of art. I love Isaiah 60, 21. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. We, being his handiwork, are made to show off his splendor. How do we do that? God, since the very beginning, has given us a pattern of his work. And his work, just like being made alive, is a complete gift. Not out of necessity, but great love, as we saw earlier. Eugene Peterson shows in Practicing Resurrection a healthy pattern of how God carries out his work. His work is, in fact, incredibly interesting. God created in six days and rested on a seventh. When God made all that he made, it was seen as good. Not mediocre, but good. It was planned with a purpose, and he knew exactly what he needed to do to accomplish the plans he had. So we are to be people who see God's work and aim to continue that hard work as a gift unto God. When we are seen displaying this same hard work in our lives, this hard work turns attention to those who are watching us to the Father. This isn't limited to those in ministry. But we should, in all aspects of our life, work as if we're working for God. It's in how we carry ourselves. It's in our fair business deal. It's the integrity of doing what we say when we're going to do it in the timeliness that it's required to do it in. 
This shows the same type of plan and purpose that the Father has displayed before us. Our work is a continuation of the work that was good that he had started with and continues to do. Ultimately, to commit to this work, it will set us apart and will bring glory to God. Does the work we do in our lives bring glory to God or does it show death? Is it stale and mundane, punching a clock in an endless, mind-numbing, joyless repetition? Or do we see our work as an extension of the good work that he has done in us? You possess the greatest gift attainable. Shouldn't that impact every single aspect of our lives? Because that's also what Jesus died to do. Look at Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. People complain all the time of not feeling enough purpose in their life. If you are alive you are purified by him, made not guilty by him. What, we should have that eagerness to do what is good because we're grateful for being made alive. How does that not give us a greater purpose? Are you alive this morning? Where do we go from here? What do we do with the information that we talked about? One, if you're alive this morning, I don't want your past death to influence the way that you live now. You don't have to earn anything from anyone. That's me talking to myself. You need to have confidence that you are alive and that the old you died a long time ago and walk in the confidence of what Christ has done for you. Remember, you are not what is special. He is. Praise him. It's okay to be happy with your accomplishments. But those are just additions to the greater work that God has done in you. So instead of boasting about it and making a big deal, boast in God who gives you those accomplishments. But also, don't be a weirdo. Like when people come up to you and they're like, oh, thank you, or thank you for something, you don't have to say, glory be, or put your finger in the air and be like, you know, glory too. Like, just say thank you, and then go praise God quietly, you know? I always just think that's weird. Okay, anyways, two, cherish the gift. Your salvation was a great gift of God's love to you. You didn't earn it. He gave this to you. Isn't that incredible? What do you think this means about you if he gave that to you without anything you've done? It means he loves you. He loves you the most he could ever love you. And he likes to give you good gifts. Not out of obligation, but because he loves to do it. Do not add this like a knick-knack to a hutch. Allow it to change your life and show people by your actions, by your words, by your thoughts. Three, do good work. Do good work to honor God and not for the accolades. And I'm speaking to myself because I like to get pats on the back sometimes. But what God has given us is greater than any pat on the back could ever feel. Because that is, it's for eternal purpose. We are alive. And if that's the case, if we are alive, if we know Jesus and he's made us alive, prove it by doing good work. In closing this morning, we define life in many ways as people. And we give life to many things. But how do we know if we are truly living? How do we know 
if we are alive. We know we're alive when we can recognize two things and follow through on a third. We must recognize that we had no power to bring ourselves from death to life. We must recognize that it is a complete gift of God through his kindness, grace, that we have received that life that we are made alive with. And lastly, we have to commit to the work that he has created us for. If you know these things, then be different. Be alive. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a good God that saw our helpless condition and you made a way for us. It was completely your work, not anything we've done. Remind us of that, God, that we would humbly approach you, that we would grow in our appreciation and love, God, that we would work hard because we're grateful for what you've done for us. We ask that you'd be with us this week. You are so good, and we love you, Father. Amen.